Dan. I think some of the Rooted crew are here. Um, great to have you in. Um, a little question for you guys, if you, if you want uh, to have something to kind of get you going through. Um, how do we see um, truth and love relating in different ways in 3 John? What are some of the different ways we see truth and love connected to each other? And maybe afterwards you could have a talk about, about that and uh, how that might impact your own lives. Well, um, there's a question. What does it look like to be a church that is committed to the truth? How would you answer that question? What does it look like to be a church that's committed to the truth? Um, a few answers we might come up with. Um, kind of preaching every Sunday from the Bible preaching from the Word of God, preaching through books of the Bible, letting God's Word set the agenda. Maybe reading the right Christian books and the right Christian authors. Um, maybe uh, saying the Apostles' Creed and some of the other confessions of faith that Christians have said uh, throughout the centuries. Maybe we're committed to the truth if we sign up to a really rigorous doctrinal statement. Uh, maybe we're committed to the truth if uh, we agree with uh, the, the early seven ecumenical councils where the early church got together and, and thought through um, how do you understand who Jesus is, fully God, fully man? How do you understand um, who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit? Perhaps we sign up to something like um, the 39 Articles for members of the Church of England or the Westminster Confession of Faith if you're a Presbyterian. Uh, or some Baptists, the 1689. Maybe that looks like being a church committed to the truth. And actually, all of those things can be true, really good and helpful. And our opinions uh, on what some of those things say really do matter. But in 3 John, and actually all the letters of John, we, we see that, that that isn't quite enough. That isn't quite enough. Or rather, those things never exist uh, on their own. They never exist like a, a kind of dry packet of seeds that, that, that aren't bearing fruit, that just rest uh, in the cupboard, dead and dry. Now, John goes further. He says, I will know that you are committed to truth by your commitment to love. John says, if he were to come uh, along to Redeemer uh, and visit us on one Sunday morning, um, he wouldn't find out if we were committed to the truth simply by looking at our website. He might get a good idea, but that wouldn't quite be enough. He'd have to come in the back door. He'd have to uh, take a seat uh, amongst us, experience time uh, with us and our fellowship together. He says, I'll know your truth, your commitment to the truth, not just by the things that you believe, but by how that is impacting your lives, by your love. So sometimes we kind of pit truth and love against each other, don't we? Um, maybe in everyday life, um, you've heard someone say, well, actually, no, it's, it's more loving to lie in this situation. Keep the truth from them, uh, because it might be quite painful uh, to hear. We might do that in... Um, different situations, but, but there are kind of Christian caricatures of this as well that you might have heard. 
Um, maybe we kind of caricature a church committed to the truth. Over here is a church with very long sermons, perhaps quite serious and dour, very God-fearing, but a little bit lacking in warmth. On the other hand, we, ha- we go into a church and we think, oh, they are committed to love. They are welcoming, warm, hospitable, but we think, oh, perhaps a little bit touchy-feely. And maybe you're lucky to have not encountered those caricatures. Uh, because when we put it that way, it's as if we're saying that you can only have one or the other. And it's as if we're, we're doing down one in light of the other as well, depending on kind of where our preference or background might lie. John is showing us in, in this little letter, it's the shortest letter in the New Testament, that truth and love, they cannot be pitted against each other because they go hand in hand. Uh, the pastor um, and author Ray Ortland puts it a little bit like this, um, a couple on the screen in a, a book called The Gospel. Um, he says, gospel doctrine, what we believe, produces a gospel culture. That the truth we believe, if we really believe it, leads to a way of living, a culture that is shaped by those truths. The connection is an organic one. Um, it's a little bit like a hydrangea. Um, and we're going to get to 3 John in just a moment. But this is a, we'll get, get, go, go with me on this. We're going to come back to this as we go through. A little bit like a hydrangea. Um, those of you who are gardeners will correct me on this if I'm wrong. Hydrangeas come in different colors. Um, but that is not because you, well, you probably can get some different seeds, but it's not entirely according to, oh, I'm going to buy a pink one or a blue one. Uh, no. The same plant could flower in different colors in different years according to how acidic or how alkaline the soil is. Um, I discovered this when I was three, when we had a hydrangea in our garden, and one year it was pink, and the next year it was blue. I, what is going on here? But just as you might go and measure the soil, uh, you could say, oh, okay, we can measure that. This soil is acidic or alkaline, therefore I can kind of trace it back up to the relevant flower color that I would expect. You could also do the inverse. We could look at the flower color and trace it back to what is in the soil. In the soil of truth, what flowers? Love. In the soil of gospel doctrine, a gospel culture should grow. And if that is not what is flowering, then perhaps we need to trace it back to its source and test the soil uh, itself. So what does it look like to be a church committed to the truth? Well, 3 John shows us that the gospel is a truth uh, to live by, which means it's a truth to love by. Um, It's the smallest letter in the Bible, but it paints this multicolored portrait of a pastoral situation about how truth and love fit together. So let's dive in, and hopefully uh, we'll see this theme weaving through. Last week, we looked at 2 John, and we saw there was a warning uh, at the end of 2 John not to welcome the wrong people into the church who would maybe pollute the soil and bring about the wrong kind of culture. Don't welcome in the wrong people who are not according to the truth. This week in 3 John, we've seen that there are some people who should be welcomed. They have arrived at this church, but the response is split 
We've got one guy, Gaius, you see in verse 1. He welcomes them in verses 1 to 8, and we'll look at that. But we have another guy, Diotrephes, verse 9 to 11, and he tells them to go away. And as we look at these two examples, we're going to see what they have to say about being a church which is committed to the truth. Living examples of gospel doctrine creating a gospel culture. Or sadly, the inverse. So let's have a look at Gaius. Our point for Gaius is imitate the love that takes trouble for the truth. Um, At the heart of this letter, you might have seen in in verse uh, 11, is John writing to Gaius saying, Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He's writing this letter to say, imitate the good example, be the good example, and watch out for uh, the false one. So imitate the love that takes trouble for the truth. That is an example for us as well. These first eight verses give us different camera angles on a love that flowers out of the soil of truth. So let's have a look at them. Firstly, uh, this love stems from the truth. Uh, Verse one, before we kind of come across Gaius and these visitors, look at how John begins. The elder, that's John, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. John refers to Gaius as dear friend four times in this letter, or beloved, maybe, if you've got a different translation. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, and verse 11. John loves Gaius, but where does this love come from? It's not simply a shared interest. It's not a kind of personality match that they've, they've done uh, online. No, verse 1, it's love in the truth. James showed us last week that the heart of truth, heart of love, is truth. It is uh, truth is 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 a DNA that all Christians share. John's love for Gaius is rooted in that DNA of the truth. The truth of the gospel is that deeper love of Father, Son, and Spirit that they have been woven into. Now there are different reasons for loving people, aren't there? But sometimes we love people simply because of who. They are. And John loves Gaius because of the truth of the gospel, because the, go- the DNA of the gospel, the DNA of the truth is in both of them. Their friendship is more profound than any common interest in chess or stamps or whatever it might be, because it is based on something glorious that unites them together. So firstly, it is a, a love that stems from the truth. A- and I wonder, just for a moment, how the fact that love stems from truth might shape our friendships, both with one another and with other brothers and sisters. Um, Perhaps it will help us with people who are not like us. Because it says it doesn't matter if we don't have similar interests to somebody within the church family. They are a brother or sister. And so I will choose to love them. I will love them in the truth. Perhaps it pushes us to go deeper in our conversations than we might do with some other friends. Um, In the same way that that John is writing, he's willing to take trouble, isn't he? He writes a letter to encourage, to support and comfort. We might text someone, meet up for a a walk or, or a drink to check in on how they're doing, to speak into their life. Because it is a love that comes from the truth. 
And it means that we'll pray for them. And it shapes what we pray for them. Do you see verse 2? Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health, that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. But John, is, he's interested in, in all of Gaius' life. He wants him to be in, in good health, but also he wants his soul to be well. Maybe that's a challenge for us in our conversations, in our, in our prayers, in our aspirations. What, what do we pray for each other? Do we tend to focus on good health and all things going well? Or do we pray for our souls too? John says a love that is rooted in the truth will, will pray for both. It takes trouble for the truth because it stems from truth. But secondly, it's a love that walks in truth. Verses three and four, um, listen now to, to what these brothers, uh, these people who came and stayed with Gaius, what did they say about Gaius? Uh, John says, it gave me great joy when some believers came and they testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Well, how did these brothers, and maybe brothers and sisters, these visitors, how did they know that Gaius walked in the truth, that he was faithful to the truth? They knew because he loved them, because he welcomed them. They saw that for Gaius, the truth of the gospel wasn't a sort of footnote to everyday life, but it was the heartbeat of it. In a sense, the truth of the gospel pumps the love of God around his whole body so that he can walk it out, to live it out, head, heart, and hands. Verse 3 talks about truth that we walk in. Ray Ortland, uh, who uh, I quoted earlier, says this, The gospel gives more than a place to stand. It leads us into a path to follow. Or the book of James that uh, Gareth quoted earlier. We're not to be just hearers of the word, but doers of it as well. And when we are open to all that we have heard, all that Christ has done for us, we can be open to all he can do within us. For Gaius, the truth isn't just an exam to pass and then forget. It made a difference to how he lived, to how he loved And what does John say when he hears about this love? He says, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walking in the truth. John is probably a bit of a spiritual father to Gaius. And like any parent, he would love to see his child prospering. But one thing should bring greater joy than any worldly success. Seeing children, seeing our brothers, sisters, parents walking in the truth seeing that the truth of God has seized their hearts and is shaping their lives. And again, it's worth pausing, isn't it? And asking ourselves, how often do we deliberately notice that in each other and point it out and say, I'm so encouraged. I, I saw how you, you walked up to that person at church who, who was standing on their own for a couple of minutes and uh, you, you just showed them such love and kindness. Or how you gave up time in the week to meet up with someone who was struggling. Often we can get um, 
in our conversations kind of quite caught up in uh, just everyday happenings of life, can't we? Because life is busy. Opportunities at work or... But John is encouraging us to be encouraged when we see the truth lived out. And that is a love to imitate, isn't it? But let's get to the specifics of what Gaius has actually done. What, what does walking in the truth um, look like in this scenario? It looks like giving a welcome and giving a hospitality. So the third aspect of this love that we should imitate is a love that welcomes in the truth. Um, Sophie and I enjoyed watching uh, this series, Race Around the World. I don't know if anyone's seen it. Contestants kind of cover large distances on a limited budget, uh, and they try and get kind of first across a checkpoint. And the savvy ones uh, kind of save money by avoiding hotels, and they kind of work at a kind of a, a ranch or a family business to get free board overnight. And these places, these families, they're welcoming these strangers in in exchange for, for kind of helping out for, for work or service of some kind. And typically, uh, they, they do treat them as strangers. Sometimes they get, a, they get a good deal, but often the sleeping arrangement is sort of a, a kind of three-sided barn or something not particularly comfy. And in one sense, humanly speaking, Gaius has no reason to accept these people into his home, does he? They were strangers, verse 7. They were strangers, but he treated them as brothers and sisters. So lavish was his hospitality that when the brothers and sisters got back to John, verse 6, they told all about his love. I guess this is reading into it a little bit, but he probably gave them food, his house, his time, a listening ear, his conversation, his encouragement. And he even risked his reputation with Diotrephes, who we'll get to in a little bit. Gaius shows a love which takes trouble. But why? Why, why does he do this? He doesn't, doesn't have to. Well, he doesn't welcome them to get a review on TripAdvisor or Google or even to get on TV, maybe like some of the Race Across the World people. Uh, he didn't welcome them because of what they could give him. He welcomes them because of the truth. And we see that that is because this love is not just a love that welcomes in the truth, but works together for the truth. Verses 7 to 8. Verse 7, we see that these visitors, they have come in and they have gone out, do you see, for the sake of the name. For the sake of the name. There was something very appropriate about Gaius treating these visitors in this way. These people were traveling to share the good news of Jesus, a bit like a full-time missionary. And we see, don't we, that they are not expecting to get any help from unbelievers. So John says in verse 8, oh, you've done the right thing. We should support people like these. Two things. This is a responsibility and a, a privilege. A responsibility. John knows not every Christian will stop their daily employment to be a missionary or to go into full-time ministry, and nor should they. But Gaius knows that there is a responsibility on churches, on members, on believers to care and provide for those who do. And so he says, we should, we should support people like this. Why? Because of the truth. 
and because it is not just a responsibility, but also, secondly, a privilege. Do you see the end of verse 8? So that we may work together for the truth. By showing hospitality, Gaius, he's not just meeting a need, he's actually working together with them for the truth. He is playing a part in the gospel going out across the land. In Philippians, the word Paul uses for that is partnership. He is partnering with these gospel workers. He is playing a part in the gospel going to the ends of the earth. So a love that takes trouble for the truth doesn't simply do it out of obligation to be well thought of, but to play a part in working for the truth, supporting the gospel going out into new places. This Gaius, in, in Gaius, we see a wonderful example of a church that is committed to the truth because he is committed to love. And can you imagine what a thing it would be to, to pray that Redeemer would be a church full of Gaiuses, full of people like that. I, I have to say, I am so encouraged by the way we do love one another and the way the truth is working its way out in love. But there is always room to grow, isn't there? There is always room to grow. There are always more people uh, coming in. And what a thing uh, to pray that we would grasp what a responsibility it is, uh, particularly in light of supporting gospel work. And what a privilege it is that we can do that, whether we are doing that full-time or not. We can all be working together. So imitate the love that takes trouble for the truth. That is the love that we are to imitate both individually, reflect on that for ourselves, but as a church. But Gaius has been rocked by another response to these visitors that's leaving him unsure. Should, should I have done this? Should I be doing this? So John then gets to unpicking Diotrephes and reassuring Gaius that he's done the right thing. So let's have a look at verses 9 to 11. Beware the love that makes trouble for the truth. Beware the love that makes trouble for the truth. So to go back to our hydrangea, uh, we are now seeing a flower of a very different color. In Gaius, we saw the, the soil of truth flowering in love. But now we see a love of a different kind, a love which focuses on self rather than on others. Have a listen to verse 9 and 10. John says, I wrote the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, he will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. And not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Verse 11 follows, Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. That's quite stark, isn't it? Verse 11 suggests we're to hear this, Gaius is to hear this as a warning that Diotrephes is an evil example to be avoided. So let's walk through some of the angles of this love that is a self-love that makes trouble for the truth. And from his behavior, let's try and trace it back uh, to the soil that it's come from. 
Firstly, did you see in verse 9, self-love likes to be first. And this seems to be the heart of his problem. His love is not stemming from truth, but from himself. There could be all sorts of reasons. Maybe it's reputation. Maybe having the final say. Maybe wanting to have control. Maybe self-preservation. And it may not be entirely malicious. He may be just trying to be really, really careful. Last week, remember, in 2 John, we heard that there were some teachers around who should not be welcomed because they will not bring the truth in. But unlike Gaius, whose love takes trouble, is costly, here we see Diotrephes making trouble for the truth. But what kind of trouble is that? Because this self-love likes to be first, we see that, secondly, it is a self-love that rejects authority. It means that he won't allow anyone else to speak to him with authority. Do you see, he cuts himself off from John and from other believers who would speak the truth in love when necessary. He's become an authority to himself. He won't allow any other voices to be heard which might threaten his position. That's challenging for us, isn't it? It's very easy to to love oneself and to want to protect oneself. I wonder if we will allow other people to say hard things to us when we need to hear it. Will we be grateful for their honesty? Or will we reject any authority that they have? We've got to watch out for that, haven't we? Self-love rejects authority, but it also twists truth. If self-love is a kind of inverted love, its relationship with the truth is inverted as well. Do you see, John says he's ready to speak out against Diotrephes. He says, I will call attention to what he's doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. He's making up lies and rumors and fabrications. How different is that to the warmth of Gaius that we saw? I wonder, are we ever tempted to be a bit economic with the truth about ourselves? Maybe telling a a story where we come out quite a bit more favorably than than maybe we should, painting ourselves in a better light. Or maybe in the way we talk about other people, gossip and rumors about uh, who might be going out with with who. Remember that in, in the student world particularly, if you're a student here today. Or what is going on behind closed doors? It's very easily done. Not maybe what feels like an outright lie, but a little twisting of the truth. Self-love twists the truth. But it also, do you see, it isolates. These first three, that it likes to be first, rejects authority, and twists the truth, begins a kind of pattern of isolating from any counsel, any care, any kind of constructive criticism of other people. And that's the opposite of what we're made for, isn't it? The community of saints that we are to be together. As well as isolating, self-love bruises other believers and abuses authority. He refuses to welcome other believers in verse 10. We don't quite know why. Perhaps it meant that he could keep control. He could stay a big fish 
in a small pond rather than be a small fish in a big one. But not only does he bruise the believers, uh, those visiting uh, brothers and sisters, by not letting them in, he goes a step further. Anyone who wants them in, he says, I'm going to put you out. He's making it hard for anyone to disagree or engage with him on anything. And at this point here, we see, don't we, just how dangerous this is. Because this self-love ultimately hinders rather than helps the truth. Gaius' love, it worked together for the truth. We saw he was working together so that the gospel could go out. But what is happening here, he is hindering the truth. He is stopping it being able to go out. It's the opposite of John's advice in verse 8. Diotrephes reveals that his self-love is growing in a very different soil. As he rejects gospel workers, it would seem to be a rejection of the importance of all gospel work at all. Maybe even a rejection of the Lord Jesus himself. And so John says to Gaius, Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Beware the love that makes trouble for the gospel. Trouble for the truth. The thing is, though, we might think, okay, I've had a look at Diotrephes, and he he doesn't seem to be a a particularly great character, does he? He doesn't seem to be um, particularly good person to imitate but we might think well if he turned up in our church he would be dead easy to spot but I think the picture John is giving is supposed to be a subtle slippery slope this self-serving probably started with just having maybe a strong vision for what the church should be perhaps being assertive and showing charisma and, and, and engaging someone people wanted to follow And any coercion there may have been was probably backed up by a reason that that made sense. But over time, transparency gradually was replaced with secrecy. Plurality, we we don't know if there were other um, elders. We think that Diotrephes was probably uh, the leader of the church or one of them. It's now meaningless because he won't listen to anyone. Any accountability that he had with John, that's been dismantled until John can get there and speak into it. And anyone within the church, well, they have no incentives to challenge him, do they? Because, well, if they challenge him, that's it. They're out. Well, this isn't a gospel culture in any shape or form, is it? Just like uh, the change in a hydrangea flower reveals the change in soil, it seems that Diotrephes' self-love is not growing from the truth at all. Ray Ortland, one more time, uh, on doctrine, gospel doctrine and culture, he came up with this equation, which is that if we have a right doctrine plus a wrong culture, that equals actually a denial of the doctrine itself because truth minus love is a denial of truth he says this it's up on the screen it is possible for us to unsay by our practical church culture what we say in our official church 
doctrine. It is possible for us to unsay by our practical church culture what we say in our official church doctrine. It is possible to hold to the gospel as theory even as we lose it as a reality. That's challenging, isn't it? And that's why John says, beware an anti-love stemming from an anti-gospel, an anti-truth. And in one sense, what is the application of all of this? It is for us to, to imitate the good example and to be aware of uh, the, the false one, the love that does not stem from truth. And in one sense, the application is, is that we all pray together and particularly that, that, that you pray for us as elders that we wouldn't drift that we would not be like a Diotrephes and we would be like a Gaius. That we would model truth flowering in love. That we would lead that, that we would establish a culture like that at Redeemer. But I guess more broadly, to ask ourselves, well, how might we be tempted to unsay in our actions the things that we believe in our hearts? But given what is going on in here, I wonder, do you think John is a little bit restrained? Do you think he should have gone full-on gung-ho and kind of write diatrophies? I mean, he hasn't been shy in the letters before. Um, He doesn't mince his words. Um, Let let me read you a couple of bits from 1 John. uh, 1, 1 John 2 verse 9, he says, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is in the darkness. That's quite stark. Um, 1 John 4 verse 1, test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Uh, 2 John, he uses words like deceivers and antichrists. I wonder why, why doesn't he say that about diotrophies? Why doesn't he just kind of give it to him? We don't fully know. Maybe he doesn't have all the facts. And it's interesting, not a word is said about his doctrine, is it? About what he believes. So we must assume that maybe he could pass a kind of theology exam. But maybe John knows that a lecture in doctrine isn't what is going to solve the issue. In the same way that that knowing the truth can lead us to showing the truth in love, sometimes experiencing that love that is rooted in truth is actually the thing that we need most of all first. And that, in turn, allows our heads and hearts to follow. Maybe he shows some restraint because he knows the only way for us to imitate this love that takes trouble for the gospel and to avoid this self-love, it isn't by our own efforts. It is entirely by the grace of God. This isn't a culture we can build for ourselves. It is a culture that is created by the gospel. And I wonder if John sees something of this in himself. Because like Diotrephes, John was someone who at one time also liked to be first. There's several times in the Gospels we read of the disciples arguing who was the greatest. Uh, And in Mark chapter 10, John and James even ask if they could have the position of right and left hand at Jesus' side. In a sense, he was making a trouble for the gospel. But as John's life continued, he took trouble for the gospel. He he wrote a gospel, he wrote these letters, he goes into exile, he writes the book of Revelation. 
How does he go from making trouble for the truth to taking trouble? Well, it is as he encounters the truth of God in Jesus and the love of God in Jesus himself. He writes this in 1 John chapter 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions, sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. The transformation that is true of John is true for all of us, isn't it? Taking trouble for the gospel, self-love. Sorry, making trouble for the gospel. Self-love to taking trouble. A love that is rooted in truth itself. So what does a church that's committed to the truth look like? Well, it's a church that knows this truth, knows the, the love of Jesus, and a church that imitates this love, a love that takes trouble for the gospel in the way that Jesus has taken trouble for us. And it's a church that is also wary of a love that does not stem from truth. A church that doesn't seek to merely hear the truth, uh, but also uh, do it. And that's the church we want to be, isn't it? A church committed to the truth and committed to uh, love. So let's pray that the Lord would help us uh, to gaze upon the Lord Jesus and uh, to keep uh, following him and to live out, uh, love out the truth that we know. Let's take a moment and I'll pray.